Welcome to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series features founders, investors, and legal talent that will help you embrace technology and transform your organization for a better future. This series is hosted by Natalie Pierce, the chair of Gunderson Detmer's Labor and Employment Law Practice. Natalie and her guests are committed to helping you develop new playbooks to elevate your game. Hey, this is Natalie, and it's wonderful to be here with two founders, Michelle Egger from Biomilk, the first company to create human breast milk in a lab. How great is that? And Jessica Bell Vanderwall from Frame Fertility, a digital fertility advisor that enables the early detection of underlying conditions. Amazing. Welcome, and thank you both for joining us on what is sure to be a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you so much. So let's cut right to the chase. What are the biggest challenges for women as it relates to fertility and breastfeeding? And how did your companies tackle these challenges? And we can start with you, Jessica. Yeah, I mean, I'll say uh, now as a new mom with a 16-month-old, there were a lot of challenges on the journey. And there's a lot of areas where I'm sure that people like myself and and Michelle and Reflection would love to see improvement. I think where I have a lot of energy and obviously where I'm spending time at frame relates to what I experienced within my fertility journey, which is I was one of those couples that did start trying to have a family later in life. So I was around 34, 35. So that definitely made the fertility process a little bit more difficult. But additionally, what I was really surprised by was that not until we got to that point, did I also discover a lot of other risk factors and underlying conditions that really challenged our ability to start a family. Um, I found out, for example, I had PCOS and a thyroid disorder, and it was just really overwhelming and unfortunate because again, that coupled with my age made it really difficult for us to get to a solution naturally and smoothly. And so we ended up spending thousands of dollars. So did our employers and you know, we're one of the lucky ones. We actually have a, a daughter at the end of this, but not everyone is so lucky. And so it's it's an unfortunate example of this classic sick care model in healthcare, which is not until we encounter a problem, do we actually dig in to try to, to solve it. And so that was the, the main issue that I experienced and something that I'm really excited. We're putting energy around it frame. Gosh, that, it's so true. Everything about that's so true. And it seems like we had similar experiences, Jessica. Is it, and I think this is probably true for a lot of moms, be them working moms or, or not. I remember as a junior law firm partner thinking that it was time to start thinking about having a baby and discussing this with one of my clients, who's also a friend in my same age. And five years after that initial conversation, she asked me if my it will happen when it happens approach was working out. And, uh, and, and it's just, it's crazy how we can get so busy and not really understand that there might be some underlying issues. And, and I remember her suggesting that we attend a few hour course that UCSF was offering on fertility. And less than a year later, we had babies just a couple weeks apart. And I think that education and understanding uh, matters. And I think frame fertility can, can be that type of game changer on a, a much larger scale. And I, I would love to hear from you, Michelle, about what challenges you're you're tackling. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think, you know, one of the really interesting things about what we're doing here at Biomilk is we're pulling from technology that looks mostly, most similar to biologics or monoclonal antibody production, but we're applying it in a way that 
you know, frankly, the scientists that worked typically in monoclonal antibody production would never have considered because they were mostly men. And while they maybe experienced, you know, challenges with their partner in breastfeeding or using formula, it wasn't an intimate problem. And it wasn't something that they had ever considered, you know, that the production of, of breast milk in the breast is a fundamentally cellular process that if you can decouple from the physical, you know, corporal body, you can produce outside of the body. And so we often get asked by investors and, and others, you know, if you're using a technology that's well known to produce and synthesize complicated mixtures from cells and your cells are able to grow in it, why hasn't anybody done this before? Which I do take a little bit of issue that they always ask female founders, like, well, why hasn't anybody else thought of this? Yeah. But, <laughs> frankly, like misogyny is not an appropriate response, but it it is the truth. I mean, I think there is some level of, if it's not a lived problem, it doesn't feel like it's a problem to solve. And I think so much of women's health and fertility and infant nutrition and, and postmenopausal states. I mean, we look at these areas and 50% of the world shouldn't be a small market to be considering a problem to be solved in women's health. And I think Frame and, and what we're doing here at Biomilk are great examples where you know, what we're doing is not fundamentally shifting anything on its head. It, it can sound pretty frame-breaking if you haven't considered it before. Once you understand the technologies or the need states, it's very clear why these problems exist, that they're real and that they have huge implications on women's lives, work and, and happiness. Well, yeah. I mean, nutritionally equivalent breast milk is an absolute game changer. And, you know, and that, that reminds me of, a, of another. So as, as I just said, there was a success in having my daughter, but I remember just a couple months after she was born, I had to start traveling again because I was in the midst of a high stakes case for a tech company. And I had witnesses across the country when she was born. And, and I was so concerned about providing breast milk for my daughter until she was at least six months old. I, and I remember, you know, thinking that's really, really important. I've read all about it, but when you don't have your baby with you at all times, this is very hard to do. And, and I remember being in Texas and taking breaks during a deposition so that I could pump as much milk as I, as I could to put in a thermos on dry ice in FedEx home. And it was difficult. And I remember feeling like a failure for not being able to both work and ensure that my daughter got her breast milk. And so just this, this notion of being able to have a solution where, where you can do both when you have to. I'm just so thrilled just from my own personal experiences. So, so very thrilled to have you both speaking with us. So thank you again. And let me turn, let me stick with you. I should say, Michelle, you recently raised a $21 million series A from Novo Holdings. And you also raised last year from the Bill Gates Foundation. Can you tell our listeners, how, how did you accomplish this? I like to say seed raising for us was a bit of an accident, which is probably not what other aspiring female founders want to hear. But, you know, we really started out on this journey thinking that this is a really impactful technology that women and families deserve to have exposure and an opportunity to benefit from. But, you know, we're, we're just going to try to find allies and mentors and you know, maybe some angel investment. And that quickly snowballed into, you know, as we started to find more and more allies, seeing what a serious problem this is and therefore what a large market opportunity it is, you know, raising for us has, has been, we've been able to be choosy, frankly, which is, is a luxury many companies don't get to have, but it, it enabled us to think more about how we wanted to partner with people we were taking capital from 
and not just, you know, green is green, which is what you sometimes hear in the venture world of like, oh, everybody's money is the same, but, but money always comes with strings attached, right? As, as women, I think we understand that intimately from a young age, right? And, and so yeah. for us, it was really considering, you know, not only in the seed round, but even in the series A, we've raised with strict partnership criteria around, you know, you have to have a female partner at a leadership level in your firm or organization. You have to have a portfolio with 10% of founders from diverse backgrounds, and you have to have a mandate around health or nutrition or sustainability. And it is horrifying how much that narrows the aperture of VCs that exist, but really necessary. Yeah. Well, Michelle, I read somewhere about you saying how important it was to you uh, to, to get to know your investors and genuinely understand their motivators and why they're interested in you in your business. And I, I do think that especially with the accelerated adoption of not only transformative technologies, but but the advancements that we've been able to experience in life sciences that you are now in this wonderful position of saying, yeah, we also care where the green comes from. And I think that women like you have have a lot of opportunity to, to really help steer that conversation. And, and Michelle, can I stick with you for a moment, because I'd like you to also talk about what has been your experience with raising specifically on a women's health issue and what particular challenges you maybe have encountered there. Yeah. Yeah. Raising is interesting as a, as a female founded and led company on a, a women's health issue. You know, I think it's rare that we, we feel daily our, our femininity, I would say as a part of the raise process, we're another founder and, you know, um, uh, CEO, some of these terms, like at the end of the day, we, we're all founders, we all face similar challenges, but it is distinct, you know, the, the types of questioning that you get as a, as a female founder. And frankly, you know, even from groups that you would think would be more allied or more supportive of, of female founders, it's very clear as you start to see when the rubber meets the road, whether that's true or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so for us, you know, this partnership criteria, uh, speaking with other founders in the portfolio, and, and also, you know, frankly, raising in the pandemic gave us a view into people's lives that we might not have had if we had had to travel to a fancy office and I'll dress up and I'll pretend like we've had it all together. You know, <sighs> you wouldn't meet your, your male, you know, Silicon Valley, what might look like bio bros who have Sesame Street on in the background uh, with, with their kids at home in the middle of the pandemic, right? So there's something really intimate about raising on a problem that is so emotional mm-hmm. and you have to quickly understand, you know, as an investor, even as a founder, I'm not a mother. I've never breastfed. I don't have to have the experience to have built empathy for what the problem we're trying to solve looks like. And you have to find other investors who care about what you're working on, not just because it's a cool market. It's an interesting tech, you know, it could be super profitable, but also that they genuinely believe what you're working on matters and is meaningful. So that when you come with, you know, I want to turn down this acquisition offer because it's not the right partner, or I'm not comfortable with saying that claim about what we're doing they're behind you, not against you or trying to push you to move in a space that you wouldn't be comfortable going to. I love that. Thank you, Michelle. And and Jessica, you've been on your journey for a little over a year now. What are some of the challenges that you're experiencing in order to bring your platform to market? Yeah. I mean, as a founder in general, I think you're just in a constant state of navigating the challenges. And, and I think your job in general is just to keep de-risking. So there's always going to be more challenges ahead of you, but 
what is most important to de-risk and to really dig in to try to understand as soon as possible. And so I think to your comment, you know, we started down this path about a year ago. Um, funny enough, it was right after the, the birth of my daughter that we really dug in on it. And I think the first thing we started with, almost similar to, to Michelle's point, is we knew we'd get a lot of feedback around, well, do people really think about this early? And I'll say that a lot of investors continue to ask about this, this topic and say, well, I don't know if people think about building their families early. Uh, and I would say that's the first thing we knew we needed to, to better understand. And I think we got really tremendous reaction right out of the gate that not only females think about this early, actually males do too. And people are thinking about what they want for their family. And I think actually COVID has accelerated this thought process of what do I want for my family and when, and how do all the pieces come together? So that was the first piece that we really needed to understand. And we de-risked by just putting out some marketing content to understand people's reaction. Um, then we needed to understand, is there a product or a solution here that actually can help people resolve risk factors early. And so that's where we really dug in with a fantastic group of clinical advisors and experts that have really spent their career on this topic of early counseling, preconception or otherwise in the fertility space. And we built a product and a, and a robust algorithm that not only understood someone's risk factors related to their goals, but also translated them into action items. And so that was the, the next piece is, okay, but is there an actual solution? And then I think the, the final piece is, you know, really starting to put the pieces together around what is the product? Great, I understand my risks, but what do I do next? And so, you know, I was lucky in that my co-founder and I are kind of complementary in two sides of one coin. I, I have marketing and operational experience and, and he has product engineering and analytics experience. And so he built the product and I kind of pitched it out in the market and we were very quickly and easily able to understand is there a there there? And I think once we saw the dramatic reaction from the market, you know, the big question is really, how is this a big business? How does this business model work? How do you actually accelerate the adoption? And, and obviously the financials that go with that. Um, and so then it was all about customer discovery and trying to map out, is this a direct to consumer business? Is this B2B? But, but again, I think there are stepping stones along the way. And I think what's, what's really important in those early days is, you know, take risks, actually dig in, talk to your users, listen, stay curious, and, and don't be afraid to put something out there just to get feedback around it. And that's, that's kind of the mentality in general that I, that I keep is stay curious and kind of continue to engage with your end users around what problems they're having and how you might be able to help solve them. What great advice, Jessica. And, and let's stick with this and talk about the there being a there there. And I read somewhere, something you said that really resonated with me is that you wanted to provide a path beyond luck. So why don't we talk about what will frame fertility do for women and their fertility journey in the future? Yeah. I mean, I think unfortunately, again, today's options are wait and see. So to your point, hopefully get lucky uh, and start a family when, when you're ready and everything just magically comes together, either financially or medically too. Um, or right now, the other option is treatment, um, proactively or, or reactively. And, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to see the advancements that are happening around in vitro fertilization and egg freezing. And I definitely think in, in many scenarios, those are the answers. Um, I mean, a treatment was definitely the answer for me, but it didn't have to be that way. And so, you know, stepping back, you know, as I looked into this topic more broadly, what I began to understand with our clinical team is, infertility is just a symptom that something else is kind of quote unquote, not working correctly. So why don't we solve for that root cause and do it early enough so you have a chance 
at changing your course. And again, that could be that you have underlying chronic conditions that you don't know about. Like what I went through, it could be that you actually are going to need treatment, but that treatment's going to be super high cost and you need to start planning ahead and saving for it. It could be lifestyle factors. Everything's kind of there and, and ready, but you know, there's some lifestyle tweaks, whether it's, you know, ramping down smoking, alcohol, et cetera, or, or maybe it's actually something about just getting in general, your diet in order. There are just things are across the spectrum that you can dig into and understand and, and if changed or at least addressed, they would change your course. And sometimes it might even just be pulling forward your timeline. Um, so again, we really want to help to surface those risks early. So people have a shot at a, a less chaotic outcome. And I think to your comment about, you know, how it's different. The other thing that I think is super critical here is obviously we're talking about the female side of the equation, but 40 to 50% of all of infertility is related to male factors. And so there is a, a bigger concept here that we need to consider. And I think it's actually important to consider so that females don't continue to feel the weight and the guilt of, of the infertility crisis as well, because again, it, it still takes two. And so our vision is that we want to help to support anyone, female, male, non-binary, et cetera, that may want children someday. And so we want to help them understand how to get there based on whatever goals they have. And we want to, again, orient around their goal, not just kind of avoiding the chaotic outcome. We want to help it be a positive journey and be a, a planner and advisor right there next to them in the, in the process. Wonderful. Again, it, both of you game changers and, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. These should not just be female worries, if you will. We should be looking at this really holistically and part of whoever is engaged in the journey, really having the opportunity to learn, understand, plan if they want to and, and have options along the way. Michelle, I would love to learn more about the science behind Biomilk. What exactly is cultured breast milk and is the idea to supplement breastfeeding or, or replace it? Well, it helps, I think, to say kind of unintended what we're born out of in, in some ways. So my, my co-founder and CSO, Layla, you know, was a, a brand new minted PhD in her postdoc and, and had her first child and, and realized breastfeeding was really hard. You know, PhD cell biologist, really capable, smart woman, low milk supply and not able to produce enough milk and, and so demoralized that she frankly couldn't experience this part of motherhood and support her child in the way she wanted. And, and so for her, you know, looking at, at what we now, now are doing, the idea was, well, this is a fundamental cellular process. The fact that these cells, human mammary epithelial cells are what line the mammary gland they make 2,500 plus macro and micronutrients of milk simultaneously in the body. And, and if we can give them the right structure outside of the body, they can replicate that ability that they have 100 million or more years of evolution to produce milk from. And so for us, that looks like they're a cell type similar to your skin cells, both their epithelial cells. And so they like to form thin monolayers. And these cells, they know their tops from their bottoms. They're able to zipper in tightly and form a monolayer and create a separation between phases. So in the body, this means they're able to line the mammary gland and keep blood outside and pull in nutrients from the outside, turn on their biosynthetic pathways, produce milk and secrete it into the interior of the mammary gland where then a child suckles at the nipple and is able to extract it. We basically do the same thing. We give them a 3D bioreactor structure and signaling to know to zipper in tightly and form a monolayer to pull in nutrients and turn on their biosynthetic pathways in our case for media rather than blood. And secrete milk into a separate space where we're able to pull that milk off and have a, a fully formed human milk product that, well, is not ever going to be bioidentical to breast milk, 
gets us nutritionally far, far away from powdered bovine infant formula or soy-based infant formula, much closer to the nutritional value that we know has such immunological, musculoskeletal, and cognitive development in, in the course of being the first a child in the first 1,000 days of life, you know, and all the way through the ramifications and growth that we see as adults. And so for us, you know, our technology by no means could ever be a replacement for breastfeeding. It's we're not going to have the same bond capabilities, skin to skin transfer of, of microbes, good bacteria. There's so much that happens between the interaction between mother and child and the feeding process where even the composition of breast milk crazily changes while you're feeding your own child, depending on what the child needs. Of course, none of that could ever be quite replicated in, in our system, but we believe table stakes moving infants where exclusive breastfeeding isn't an option or is medically not possible for parents and they're turning to formula. Instead, they can turn to biomilk, which is as close to human milk outside of the body as we've ever been able to get. Well, so incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you. I know some days people are like, that sounds like pigs flying. And I'm like, you know, you spend enough time around it. And it really is like, my God, how did we not do this sooner? It's still hard science, but I can't believe it's taken this long for us to think about moving past 1950s antiquated powdered formula for feeding the most important beings on the planet to us. That's a really good way to sum it up. It just, for the sake of, of listeners, can, and I, and I think this season we might be learning more about biosynthetic pathways, but can you break that down for us a little bit more, Michelle? Yeah. The easiest way to probably explain this is that in the body, your cells all have different pre-programmed functions genetically, right? They are constantly doing things for you that you sentiently don't have to think about. They just do them. And this cell type that we've selected, you know, were, were you able to derive it both from human tissue and also through breast milk? Uh, we actually slough cells when you're feeding your child that cells end up in, in the milk. Uh, and, and I've gone through, you know, institutional review board, bioethics policy protocols to be able to collect those cells where everyone who's participating knows that what we're doing with them, that they have commercial viability and opportunity. But a lot of the work that we're doing at this point is frankly, just beginning to understand what are the capabilities of these cells? You know, historically, when we've researched cancer or when we've researched breast cells, we've researched cancer breast cells, right? We're always focused on unhealthy tissue growth, not necessarily milk biosynthesis. And so these cells have these huge cascades of pathways where there's hormones and signals in our body telling them it's time to produce all of this nutritional complexity, fats, lipids, sugars, things that uh, the human body needs. And they do it in a manner um, that's so amazing that gives structure and function to milk. So I like to explain it best to say, you know, you're talking about 2,500 plus macro micronutrients, but they're all arranged in these, these packages like milk fat globule where, you know, it's essentially like a time release capsule. When we ingest milk, it doesn't simultaneously all just dissolve and is utilized by the gut. It actually is slowly over time being able to be utilized by the body. And that means as we think about healthy polyunsaturated fats, like your omegas, you may have heard of that come through breast milk. Yeah. Uh, has huge impact on brain development. Or as we think about human milk oligosaccharides, which we know are the prebiotic component that gut microbiome grows from as a new infant, as you're, as you're growing and, and evolving, all the way to bioactive proteins that we know have incredible ability on developing vision and cognitive connectivity. I mean, all of these, it's, it's really quite astonishing to think about how complex the body is pre-programmed evolutionarily to do this. And really we're just letting the cells do the heavy lifting 
giving them the right environment, the right stimulation, and, and they do the rest of the work for us to produce whole human milk. You're right. It's, it's, it's an overdue solution. And the fact that you decided to tackle it, you're making society better. And it reminded me of that friend who I mentioned early on in this episode who had said, you know, come on, it's five years later. Let's, let's go uh, figure out what, what the problem might be, what the solutions can be. She and I had the opposite problem. So I was having trouble keeping my milk supply up, whereas she had so much milk. And I remember her having recognized how important it was uh, to try and give uh, babies the uh, nutritional equivalent of breast milk. She would actually, she found, I don't remember the name of, of the organization, but she found a way to share that extra breast milk with, uh, with women who were unable to feed their babies. And so this is that on just a, you know, macro level, how wonderful, because doing something like that, it's great that there are people like my friend who had the time and were really wanting to help in that regard, but you've now come up with the solution to provide for so many more newborns than ever before, much better solution. So thank you again. And, you know, I always love to hear from founders who you really see as your champions right now or, or your biggest partners. Do either of you want to, want to chime in and call out anyone, any partners, champions? I'm happy to start uh, because actually this podcast and even the process is a, is a complete example of the supporters that I really have leaned on, which is other founders. So as an example, I mean, I'm, I'm chatting with Michelle, I believe next week uh, to share learnings, uh, you know, founder to founder. I, I have leaned a lot on other founders because it's, it's a unique situation to be going through. And it's always amazing to talk to a founder too, that's a step ahead or, or two of you and, and can really shed light on what it felt like when they were in that same position. And it's, again, it's a day-to-day kind of up and down. And so it's really nice to be able to share in the process with other founders. I've especially leaned on other founders through the fundraising process in particular. I'll also just say, you know, one of the unique realities about building a business that people care a lot about. So with Frame, obviously people care a lot about starting a family. And then when they're on the other side of it, they feel you know grateful and they have a lot of thoughts around the experience. I have been so amazed by the number of people that have reached out to me blindly or through others to say, I'm just excited about what you're doing. How can I help? And I think that's the, the other really, again, wonderful thing about working on something that people care so much about. And it's it's always great too, if those situations obviously materialize into potential team members or, or just supporters in the wings. I mean, that's something that I, I constantly feel is just having this band of individuals that are excited about what you're doing really keeps you moving forward and, and thinking about what you're doing day to day too. That's great, Jessica. How about you, Michelle? I found over the last few years, leaning on, on funders is, is more of a part of my reality than I expected. Everyone always says, you know, make sure that the people you get capital from, you want to have a beer with. And I think that's so simplistic in comparison to the level of relationship building you have. I mean, you're, you're really tying your fate together in some ways. And to Jessica's point, I mean, it's always helpful to speak to other people that have done this before and, and frequently funders and VCs, especially at more of a a kind of day-to-day interaction with companies have been operators. They've started their own companies. They've been successful. They've sunsetted them. They've 
you know, they've seen a hundred companies before yours that's faced some of the same challenges. Yeah. And sometimes it's just really nice to be able to be open and honest with your funders and what your problems are, because frequently the reaction is like, oh yeah, that's normal. Or like, wow, that sounds really, really stressful for you. How are you doing? Because they've seen it all before. They know that that's kind of the norm. You know, an example specifically, as we were talking about another company that was being sued that was in our world. And I was like, I just don't know how you would deal with that. That'd be so stressful. And one of my funders was like, ah, that's normal. Like it, it may happen to you, you know? And I was like, uh, oh goodness. Okay. You know, yeah, exactly. Right. We were like, um, but like, it is, it is very beneficial to have some perspective. You're down in the trenches every day. What you're doing feels really lonely a lot of the time and very hard. And, um, there's something for having really strong advocates at a funder level who care about the problem you're solving the company, but also you as an individual and are willing to reach out and support advise and help. That's great to hear. I'm in the middle of the fundraising process right now. So I look forward to being on the other side and having them there in my corner. Yeah. I always joke with my team. They've already given us their money so we can be clear with them of what's not working. We can, uh, Tell them when things are going to be delayed, which my team doesn't think as funny as I am, as I think it is, but uh, it is true. Once you've gotten to the other side, then you get to do the relationship building. I love that. Let's talk about this. So you two are at slightly different phases of being a founder. What are each of your biggest challenges to scale your company right now? Michelle, why don't we start with you? What I think is our biggest hurdle is, is we're doing something fundamentally that no one's ever done before. We're using human cells to produce a food, which when you say it like that sounds a little scary. There is no regulatory path that fits us. Um, so, you know, if you speak to the FDA about what, what we're doing, uh, we're all kind of trying to figure out what's the path forward. What does this look like? And, and we take very, very clearly the responsibility of creating regulatory frameworks uh, as both an opportunity to help let the science lead the way on how a product should be proven safe and of high quality for consumers, but also find that that means it's a large responsibility that we do it right because yeah. we're opening a door that, you know, most of us here at this company have children, plan to have children, are excited for this product for our own kids. And it's pretty personal. <laughs> we have no oh, yeah. interest in putting forth a product that can't can't make it through the gauntlet it should to be able to be able to enter the market. So that continues to be an exciting challenge. And, uh, you know, I like to joke, we have a cadre of counseling, including you all. And my goodness, um, we could pave roads of gold with the probably amount of consult we're going to need as we continue to head down regulatory paths and, and figuring out how to work with different regulatory bodies throughout the world. It's not easy being first, but my goodness, this is a problem so worth tackling for humanity's sake. And that's not an exaggeration. All right. So Jessica, you're at a different phase as a founder. What are some of your biggest challenges right now? Yeah. Yeah. So we we're pre-fundraise again, we're kind of in the middle of it right now. So uh, hopefully by the time this, this podcast is out, uh, we'll be post fundraise. <laughs> I look forward to that. And so, you know, in those days, right. That the team is very small. Uh, it was myself and my co-founder up until even the beginning of October. And then we hired a head of operations. And so you're doing everything. I mean, you're doing all the kind of administrative backend things. You're looking into things like insurance. You're looking into things like legal support, but you're also trying to run the business and you're basically operating in the capacity of every single function of a normal business with a very, very, very small team. And so that means it's really easy to get into the weeds on the small details and have to, again, constantly be context shifting between one item and another. And so 
it's a balancing act for me between living in the day to day and just trying to get things moving and then pulling up and saying, well, hold on a second. What is the strategy? What is the goal that we're trying to achieve here? What's the bigger picture? What's the next phase of this, et cetera? And it's funny, you caught me on a day where we just did an offsite, which sounds overly formal for three people. <laughs> um, but it's been delightful because all day we've been talking about, I mean, even the five-year plan, but working our way backwards to, okay, well, what do we need to do in 2022? What about 2023? And then we get all the way down to, all right, well, what about this quarter? What about next quarter? And it's, it's a very important process to go through continuously. But again, when you're a very small, very lean team, you're, you're pre-fundraise, probably even on the other side of this fundraise, we're still going to be, you know, a somewhat lean team. You have to be really mindful of, of juggling priorities and not getting too immersed in all the little details and making sure that you're pulling up and thinking about what you're really driving towards and what really matters. Um, and that's, that's just a constant battle that I, I feel. Yeah. We, we must all make sure that we don't let perfection be the enemy of progress. Right. So, but, and Jessica, let me, let me stick with you because you, you've just come off this, this offsite and discussing the next phase and I would love to hear what is, you know, looking toward the future, the next five years or so, what changes do you think are, are on the horizon? Yeah. So I think the first one, and it's funny, I was at an event last week where I was speaking on a panel about this and it was talking about the future of digital health. And I, I find that concept kind of funny now because, you know, five years ago, it wasn't called digital health. It was called health IT, which is definitely not a sexy term, but I bet five years from now, it will not be called digital health. It will just be health. Right. And so I think COVID has really expanded the scope of digital health and what can be done remotely, what can be done virtually, et cetera. And so as we think about the frame fertility model, which already is all virtual, it's really expanding upon that framework. If, if the vast majority of clinical visits and interactions are going to be virtual or remote anyway, then how do we kind of fold into that fabric and how do we make sure that we're delivering on a unique value proposition that connects the dots? So I think what's going to be really interesting is that it's been such a wild two years um, for a lot of different reasons, but I think what's really exciting about the world of, of healthcare is the dramatic transformations that have happened on, on the technical side of the house. I'll also just say that you know, despite funding for, for women still being lower than it should be, um, I mean, it's still, you know, single digit. Um, what I'm also just really jazzed about is I feel this, this wave coming of momentum around female founders, female entrepreneurs, female VCs. And I look forward to, I think in five years, it is going to feel very different. And, and I think, again, this is something that has really gained some momentum in the past year. We're still not, not close to being there, but I, I feel like that's going to be a really exciting shift over the next five years as well. I love that. And that, that reminds me of an interview that you gave and you were asked if you could inspire a movement, what would it be? And you said it would be to unlock the power and passion of women. Michelle, how about your next five years or so? What changes do you see on the horizon? Yeah, we're growing very rapidly. Every time I turn around, I'm, I'm lightly horrified that the team is this much bigger. <laughs> and where are we going to find space for desks? This continues to be a, an elusive challenge to solve. But you know, for us, it's, it's growing out the headcount and capability of the team to a space where we're able to pursue a variety of different uh, scientific inputs, innovation, optimization, while also adding headcount to, to build out the capability to get through 
regulatory approval and safety testing move into commercialization. So there's a very real part of my world over the next five years, which is just continual growth of people. You know, unlike what Jessica was sharing, you know, we are a human intensive business. We can't run lean. And that continues to be an exciting challenge that no one really warns you of. Likewise, you know, as I already mentioned, we're scaling from producing pretty small quantities of product to moving into, you know, leaders uh, and being able to produce enough product to begin to have studies and, and work in first animal models and then humans. And it's really exciting to think about moving through that to a place where we can receive market authorization, or at least the nod of, of yes, we won't stop you <laughs> right. uh, to be able to enter the market and sell a product. It's a much more intensive market entry. It's again, that mission alignment investors is so important because it's not as easy and sexy as just turning on a, a piece of SAFs software, but yeah. it's so vitally important when you're feeding babies or you're talking about these important nutritional products that um, you don't get to skimp. You have a lot of building to do to make sure that we've even just done the fertile ground sowing required to even have a product be able to be accepted in the marketplace. Yeah, no. And I know that's one thing that you've been surprised by, Michelle, is you thought it would be harder to gain consumer acceptance, but it's it's just such a large problem for so many and such an important challenge to tackle that I, I know that's been, it's been gratifying to find a greater level of, of acceptance than that, than even you anticipated. Yeah. When I, when I first started this journey, I kept saying, you know, you can, you can ignore me as investors, as regulators, everyone, you can ignore me, but you can't ignore the problem. This is a real problem and you can't ignore the women and families that are affected by it. And it's been incredibly gratifying, even for, for women, you would, you would not expect to be champions that pop out of the woodwork with strong support of, yeah, this is a problem. And, you know, even if this product isn't for me, even if I'm not going to have children or I'm not going to have children at the time this is available, I, I want to see this in the world because families deserve better and deserve more options. And I think we still have a long way to go, but it has been surprising just how much support we really received. Wonderful. So we are, we're getting toward the end of our podcast and, and I've so enjoyed this conversation with you both. Um, one of the things that we always like to do is share practical tips with other founders and leaders. It can be lessons or tips that you'd wish you'd known earlier, for example. Any tips you guys are willing to share? Yeah, um, I, early on, I already had the goal of trying to be gentle on myself. I know I'm my hardest, harshest critic of anyone around. And I continued to try to reassert and remind myself like, you know, don't, don't beat yourself up about something you can't change, figure out how to move on more quickly uh, and, and forgive when, when you've made a mistake and just make it better and, and keep going. And, you know, that advice I think still stands for, for all founders and, and for women more broadly in business of be gentle on yourself. <laughs> it's been a really hard couple of years. There are more and more women experiencing shifts in their lives right now that they never intended or, or couldn't even have planned for. And there's something to be said for that you are probably your harshest critic too, whether you believe it or not. And resilience is an incredible, incredibly important part of being a founder. It's getting knocked down, getting told no, getting doors slammed, having people ask horribly inappropriate questions and moving on. (laughs) And you can only do those things if you're willing to forgive yourself on the the mistakes you're going to make and be comfortable that you're learning in public and you have to be gentle on yourself, that it's not always going to be pretty, but that that's how learning works. And 
to be able to bounce back and have the resiliency you need and, and find that within yourself, you have to be the first person to forgive. Great advice. Jessica? Yes, that is such good advice. I'm going to try to uh, digest that and remember that for myself. So <laughs> thank you, Michelle. Um, I, I'm I not think... always good at it. I'm sure you'll get there too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. We'll, we'll remind each other. One of the founders I talked to the other day said to me, hire six months ahead of what you need. And I think her her comment was very well-timed for me because again, we're you know in the middle of hopefully closing fundraising and and that means that we will have money to hire. But what I'm realizing is, you know, when we will actually get the right person, when we will get them onboarded, when we will get them ramping is going to take a lot of time. So we have to look forward and say, well, when do we need that person to be operational? And, and again, typically that's, it's, uh, you know, not too far away. And so now I'm starting to look further forward and say to myself, what do I need six months from now? I better start thinking about the pipeline of people to mm-hmm. put in that role now. And so that's something I'm really trying to focus in on, especially as I look at the calendar and notice it's November and then it's December and holidays make all the, the kind of next steps more challenging. Fantastic advice. Okay, so we have reached the end and I always like to, at the end of these podcasts, tell our audience a, a fun fact, a story, joke, favorite movie, uh, you name it, um, about, about yourself. So for example, I will say that I'm an adult who still likes to hula hoop. Um, anything that you guys are willing to share? You can start with you, Jessica. Uh, I was so hoping you were going to say, we'll start with Michelle. Um, <laughs> I'm so, so glad you got it first. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I was, I was torn on this one um, because I, I definitely have, you know, a favorite movie, a favorite drink of choice. I was looking at some of the, the different options, but I think the maybe most interesting thing about me that I haven't shared so far is um, I'm part of a wife husband team. Um, so I am the, the CEO, but my husband is my co-founder. And it's really funny to actually see the reaction, especially on the investor side, when we bring that up. I mean, in this situation, you know, we're family supporting other families. And so it makes a lot of sense, but you know, it's, it's, I think it's hard for some people to get their head around, you know, a, a couple working on a, a product and a company together, but it has been one of the, the biggest joys of my life is being able to, to see my partner in the professional setting too. And then obviously, you know, being in COVID, our, our work and our life are very, very intertwined because we do everything in our home. And then our 16 month old is, you know, just behind the other wall. And so our life is very much, you know, all in this house. I mean, so we had a, a baby last year and we had a company last year. And so it's, it's been a, a funny uh, journey with a lot of, as you can imagine, funny stories intermixed in there. And our, our child is probably on our Zoom calls more than I'd like to admit, but it's it's been a tremendous experience. And so I, as I see other founder stories come out and hear more about other family teams, it's just really neat and inspirational. And I would just say, don't don't discount the uh, the wife-husband team. And, and honestly, I see a lot of wife-husband teams where the, the female is the CEO. So I, I love that too. Oh, that's great. Okay, Michelle, you're up. Jessica, I just have to tell you, my my partner just joined us as our engineering director. Yes. And it's the built-in trust and capability. Although I am considering murdering him on our commute home every day, <laughs> that's about the only thing that's a drawback. But yeah, I, I totally hear you there. Yeah. A, a fun, interesting fact that my, my party trick is um, so food scientists by training have always loved to cook foods by far and away my love language. And I think it's born out of that um, genetically, I actually, I have a, a disorder. It's, it's called hyperosemia. And it means I have three times the sense of smell than the average human. So like 
fresh baked cookies just smell a heck of a lot better to me than they do to you. The flip side of that is that as a little kid, I basically could not use public restrooms. My mother, bless her heart, uh, had to suffer through many a dry heaving moment because everyone else's smells like perfumes and stores, airplanes. Oh, my nightmare. It's, it's a, it's a weird world. And so when I get a cold, I get especially cranky, even more so than the average person, because I rely on my sense of smell so much that when I'm stuffed up, I just like can't function. It's impressive. <laughs> oh, Michelle. Oh. <laughs> well, listen, thanks so much for talking with us today, Michelle and Jessica. We, we wish you both great continued success and thanks everyone for joining us. You've just listened to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series is brought to you by Gunderson Detmer, the world's number one law firm representing venture capital funds and high growth companies. Join Natalie Pierce on our next episode as she and her guests help prepare your organization for the future. Please subscribe to the Future Work Playbook.